Hello and welcome to the Middle East Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Pinier, host of the Medjilis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. We've discussed the Tajik government's repression toward various groups in Tajikistan many times on the Medjilis podcast as the situation in the country has worsened. But in 2022, Tajik authorities have reached new depths in their pursuit of perceived opponents. Scores of people have been imprisoned, and they represent a broad spectrum of Tajik society. Journalists and bloggers, activists, lawyers, religious figures, ethnic Khmeris, and members of the political opposition. And there's been a brief war with Kyrgyzstan on Tajikistan's northern border and a rocket attack from Afghanistan on Tajikistan's southern border from by militants of the Islamic State of Khorasan. So what is going on in Tajikistan this year? To discuss all this, I am joined by Selim John Ayob, the director of RFARL's Tajik service, known locally as Azadi, Edward Lemon, president of the Washington-based OXA Society and research assistant professor at the Bush School of Government and Public Service, Texas A&M University in Washington, D.C., and Nick Lewis, Central Asia and Caucasus correspondent at the Committee to Protect Journalists. Thank you all for joining me today. Uh, we're going to start out with a with the kind of a look at the big picture, and and then we'll focus in on various aspects of the problem in Tajikistan of the problems in Tajikistan. Um, Salim John, you've been reporting on Tajikistan for more than three decades, except for the 1992-1997 civil war. Do you ever remember a time when there was so much going on in Tajikistan in such a short span of time? No, the answer is no. Uh, it's uh, really a kind of extraordinary situation. Uh, there were some uh, detentions, some pressure in the past, uh, let's say, two decades, uh, but uh, not like like today. It's, uh, some colleagues are calling it uh, a war against uh, journalists and, and bloggers. There was never a uh, time in Tajik history then more than uh, this number of journalists were detained uh, and uh, and sentenced to to up to ten years as uh, Daliri Momali uh, just for nothing, just for telling the truth, just for raising social issues, even not uh, uh, going deeply into politics uh, or other, uh, let's say, uh, special uh, sensitive zones of the of the government uh, policies. Uh, yes, the situation is is awful. Okay, thank you for giving us the overview of that. And Nick, uh, Selim John was just talking about journalists, and I know that you've been following the plight of the media in Tajikistan. Can you explain to the audience what's been happening there in recent months? Uh, sure. Well, obviously, a lot has been going on. Uh, we've had since uh, since May uh, at least six or seven journalists uh, and bloggers who could be considered to work as, as journalists who have been detained and just recently uh, as everybody knows, uh, we've had uh, a 10-year sentence handed down to Dalai Mamali. Uh, shortly before this, his colleague um, Abdullah Gurbati received a seven-and-a-half-year sentence. Uh, just a month ago, a retired journalist uh, and blogger, Mohammed Sultan, received a seven-year sentence. And we still have four others who are, who are currently on trial, facing likely long prison terms, uh, including uh, the Pamiri journalist of Akhanim uh, Mamad Shoeva, who prosecutors have asked uh, 25 years uh, in prison for her. So we can expect um, some, some other serious pr uh, prison terms to, to be announced very soon, I think. Okay, uh, thank you. Grim news indeed. Um, Edward, we are going to talk more about journalists also in this, but, but um, the Tajik government is known for its use of transnational repression. And we've seen Tajik citizens forcibly return to Tajikistan many times in the past, but this year it seems to be happening more frequently and involves 
people from mainly from Tajikistan's eastern Gorno-Badakhshan Autonomous Oblast. Can you walk us through a little bit about the the use the Tajik government getting its citizens extradited, deported from other countries this year? Yes, Bruce, as you say, you know, when we've had these crackdowns, intense periods of crackdowns in Tajikistan, historically we have seen an uptick in in Tajikistan reaching overseas to um, to target opponents or even just members of, in this case, a group who have been deemed a threat to um, national security who are being brutally repressed by the Tajik government for no reason beyond their desire for greater autonomy, which is the Pamiri people, which I'm sure we'll dig into in greater detail um, later in the session. But certainly we've seen Tajikistan using transnational oppression, targeting people overseas in Turkey and in mostly in Russia. We've had at least 71 cases historically of, of, of Tajik citizens in Russia being targeted, in many in many cases forcibly returned to Tajikistan. And Tajikistan you know, stands out in a world where we often think of countries powerful countries like China and Russia reaching beyond their borders. Um, you know, Tajikistan, a relatively small and weak country. We often don't think of these sort of countries as, as being able to do this, but Tajikistan certainly has been doing this with increasing frequency in 2022. Um, at least 15 cases, that, that public cases that we found of individuals being targeted in Russia in 2022 alone, which would be one of the most intense periods we've seen of this sort of practice. So certainly it's, it's, it's a sign that this war on opposition on on journalists on Pamiris is 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 going global okay thank you for uh, giving us some perspective on that one too that that it is that bad this year compared to previous years um Salim John if I could get back to you for just a question let's go to the trial process of a lot of these people these trials or at least many of these trials seem to be happening in, in actually the detention facility right the CISO these aren't they're closed door trials uh, but but how, is, is that common for Tajikistan to have all these kind of trials in actually in a jail, essentially? Yeah, that's true. No, you, usually, according to the law, uh, only those cases that contain state uh, uh, secrets uh, should go uh, behind the closed doors. But we are witnessing that, first of all, all the... Uh, trials of Badakhshani people who detained either in Badakhshan or in Russian extradited to Tajikistan. And now all the uh, cases of, of uh, journalists and bloggers are taking place behind uh, closed doors and in, in, the, in the prison itself. And the prison, uh, even we are not, um, my colleagues in Dushanbe are not able to take picture or to film uh, around uh, up to 20 meters of, of this facility because according to the law so it's uh, uh, filming those facilities are, are prohibited so of course entering those facilities even if uh, some relatives are inside or the trial is going on is not possible uh, the um, office of the general prosecutor should give a special permission to, to whoever uh, Want to enter the facility, and uh, our journalists were not able to enter the any of those trials, and even in in many cases, even close relatives are deprived to take part on those trials. Uh, in some cases, only for a few minutes when the the court decision was read, or only just for for short uh, time. 
So, and, but as uh, a lawyer, Shoral Khodratov put it, it's, it's completely illegal because even when the, the case contains some uh, national or state secret, uh, the, there should be a special decision uh, made by, by the court and confirmed by the Supreme Court. But, uh, you know, there is a lot of procedural shortcomings uh, during those trials. You know, and, and let me just ask a follow-up question. Since we know so little about the trial process, do we know what the charges against these people are, and then we find out what they've been found guilty of. But do we have any idea what kind of evidence is being presented at these trials? Unfortunately, no, no any uh, solid uh, evidence. Uh, just in the trial of Daleri Imomali, yes, there was a situation when uh, he made a, a report about demolishing uh, some houses around Dushanbe. And some, not all, but some of those houses were built uh, illegally. So, but it's again, it's not about uh, reporting, it's about the, the fact. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, there is uh, no evidences of any of those uh, charges. And in some few minutes, we will publish a letter of uh, Abdusator Pir Muhammad Zoda. We uh, obtained it from a source close to the investigation, a source uh, working in, in, in the prison, and uh, was asked by Pir Muhammad Zoda to give this letter to Radio Ozodi. So this is awful letter, and he's uh, telling how uh, the, the investigators are trying to, torturing him, torturing uh, him to accept those charges, you know, and uh, very uh, heartbreaking uh, letter uh, with the, all the evidence that uh, how uh, those people, and this is the example that how those journalists uh, were sentenced uh, because uh, mostly based on that, they agree with the charges. And uh, I can add one more point that uh, we have an information that authorities recorded video confessions of all those journalists. But what is interesting, uh, they still do not uh, publish those videos, uh, probably because, because they understand that they are, are full of wrong information and, and probably uh, uh, that's why they decided not to publish them so far. Uh, but. But this letter will open a lot of things related to those trials. Okay, thank you for explaining that. You know, Nick, you, you, you've been, you cover Central Asia and the Caucasus. Uh, what are these trials? What, are we, what should we learn from these kind of trials? I mean, uh, what's your opinion on, on this system? You Compared with other countries you cover in the Caucasus and Central Asia, have you seen these kind of incidents where there's closed doors trials? We don't, have no idea what the trial process is. We only hear about the charges and the verdict. Uh, well, of course, Tajikistan uh, has had a, a very bad press freedom situation for for, for some time. Uh, not as bad as it is at present, but it's always been one, certainly one of the the worst in in my region, Central Asia and Caucasus that I cover. And, and this region, of course, is, is is one of the worst for press freedom uh, in the world. Um, but something like this we haven't seen in Tajikistan before, and it really it really reminds you more perhaps of the situation in Turkmenistan, where it's very very hard. Uh, to get any kind of information about uh, any sentences against uh, journalists or activists or others. 
who perhaps you, you may not even find out about their, their prison sentences until uh, until long after they've occurred. Uh, so this situation in Tajikistan is, is extremely concerning at the moment. And I just want to underline, uh, as Salim John said, that, I mean, really, Tajikistan authorities have done everything possible in these cases to uh, to prevent information from becoming public. Um, I mean, as well as holding all of these trials, uh, it, it appears unlawfully, but, but behind closed doors, uh, some of them have been classified as secret, uh, the case against the Pamiri journalists and against Dalai Mamali, of course. As well as this, they've made the lawyers sign on disclosure agreements, so the lawyers have generally declined uh, to talk to the media or to international organisations or else uh, just provided minimal information, and even family members uh, can't get uh, can't get good information about what's happening to, to their loved ones who, who are in detention. On top of this, as well, there's a, a a real problem at the moment in terms of gathering information about these cases, just because of the, the fear, really, that everybody is feeling in Tajikistan at the moment. I mean, some some family members of the jail journalists jail journalists have uh, spoken to us uh, off record. Other, others have declined. Uh, but several have said that authorities have you know, threatened to jail them or to jail other relatives of the journalists or perhaps to, uh, I mean, it's been a serious problem with, uh, with uh, Tajikistan authorities in collusion with Russia abducting uh, activists, etc. From, from Russia before. And these threats have been made against the, these journalists' families as well with family members in, in Russia. So, and this is just not just a problem that's affecting family members of the jail journalists. We're finding that journalists and heads of, of media outlets in uh, Tajikistan are, are much less keen to talk to us uh, than before, or they prefer to talk perhaps off record. Uh, even uh, representative advocacy organizations are, are being very, very cautious uh, with what they're saying. So really, this is, this is an extremely concerning situation in Tajikistan. The people, are, people are really very scared to, to speak uh, about anything in, in detail with these cases, anything that, that's happening surrounding them. Okay, thank you. Um, Edward, uh, you know, I want to make sure I have the whole table set here before we try to look into the future and figure out what's going on. You know, the, the, in, in the cases of both the journalists, in the cases of, of activists from Gornobarakshan region, uh, and even other places, the government has this seems to have this obsession with connecting them somehow with the opposition in exile, right? That somehow these people are working with the Islamic Renaissance Party of Tajikistan or, or Group 24 or something. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? about this tendency for the Tajik government and, and you know, how, how credible uh, are any of these topics or, or uh, oppositely looking at it? Uh, why, if it's so hard to believe these connections, did the, does the Tajik government seem so intent on tying up all its loose ends at once, uh, you know, and linking everybody to the opposition in exile? Right. Well, I think the Tajik government has a long history of, in many ways, inflating and certainly over overplaying the threat posed by various opposition movements, terrorist organizations, um, so-called you know, extremist organizations um, in the country. And I think this is part of that broader pattern of, of overreacting to um, a threat that is, is in fact rather minimal. The Islamic Renaissance Party obviously was the opposition movement in the country, the opposition party that held seats in parliament until 2015, but then was rapidly um, you know, dismantled and labelled a terrorist organisation, Group 24, another opposition movement founded by um, Umar Al-Gubatov, a businessman who fell out with the ruling regime and then 
fled into exile and, and founded this opposition movement. And they're both organizations considered to be extremist or terrorist organizations by the government. And so you know, certainly the government has tried to tie many of the detained journalists, activists um, to these movements or made similar accusations of them being part of vaguer terrorist or extremist movements, you know, that are very broadly defined within Tajik legislation. And so this is, you know, this is part of a, this is part of a long-term strategy of um, trying to use this discourse of, of terrorism and extremism to discredit legitimate opposition and um, journalists who are just, as Salim John and Nick have both said, trying to do their job. Um, so it's a way of discrediting them and ultimately, you know, handing down these very long sentences. Um, but certainly it's part of a, part of a, a longer-term pattern. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. I think we have all the background information we need to, to move forward. So, uh, But we, do, we are at the midway point in the show. Um, so it's time for me to mention again that this is uh, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's Medjelis podcast, a weekly current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. Uh, my name is Bruce Benier. I'm the host of the Medjelis podcast. And today I'm joined by Edward Lemon president of the Washington-based Oxford Society and research assistant professor at the Bush School of Government and Public Service, Texas A&M University in Washington, D.C., uh, Nick Lewis, Central Asia and Caucasus correspondent at the Committee to Protect Journalists, and Salim John Ayoub, and he is the director of RFERL's Tajik Service, known locally as Azadi, and I thank you all once again for joining me on the program. All right, let's, let's talk about why this is happening this year, because there's certainly, it can't be a coincidence that this is happening you know, in such a short space of time, as we mentioned at the start, the selling John was talking about that. We can almost put a mark down of like, you know, November last year when they first had problems in Gorno Badakhshan, uh, and three people ended up being killed. Uh, and ever since then, it seems like it's been nonstop with the Tajik government, some detaining somebody, arresting someone, imprisoning someone. I mean, what is it about 2022 that's different from previous years? I'll tell you, Edward, um, I'm curious why. Your thoughts on why we're seeing all this activity in 2022? Well, I think, you know, next month signifies the 30th anniversary of when Rahman was first, during the height of the Civil War, elected to the acting position of acting head of state later was was elected in inverted commas president in 1994. But certainly over these 30 years, you know, his he's moved from being you know, a relatively weak and peripheral player within Tajik politics to being the central person in, in, in Tajikistan's politics. And I think the crackdown that we've seen in, and, um, you know, the state repression we've seen in, in Pamir's is a final process of the consolidation of his power after the civil war. So I think, you know, it needs to be viewed within this politics of, of authoritarian consolidation and stamping out any possibilities of, of, of opposition. And I think the crackdowns on, on journalism are also part of this, you know, final stage of, of, of consolidation of power. And I think that is looking towards succession. Obviously, Rahman turned 70 earlier this month in October 2022, and, you know, has had rumoured to be having some, some health problems, although it's very difficult to know precisely, given that the, the, the the crackdown on the media, it's very difficult to get information out of the country. And so we don't really know the accuracy of those claims. But certainly, he is already thinking towards a transition. You know, he, during the height of the pandemic, his um, son was elected Speaker of the Upper House of Parliament, which means he would succeed his father should he become incapacitated or die in office. Though certainly there is there is already in place a, a, a potential transition model. And I think as we are looking towards that potential succession the government and Rahman's government is looking to um, looking to fully take control over the country. 
Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, Salim John, any, anything extra you want to add about why, why is this happening, so much happening in this year all of a sudden? Yes, as uh, Edward mentioned, uh, yeah, there was a plan of, of uh, power transfer uh, from Mr. Rahmonte's son, and uh, apparently the plan is is postponing. Some sources in Dushanbe uh, have been telling that it, it should be. It, it was planned to take place uh, a, almost a year ago. But as we know, in November we witnessed uh, Badakhshani events. So, and this is one point. The second point is that uh, it's for many people in Tajikistan. It's coming clear that the government and Mr. Rahman, after the 30 years of uh, being in office, has not uh, fulfilled his promises. For example. He had been saying that very soon the uh, having not electricity will be a, a legend, a, a, a history uh, will go to, to, to the past. And, but still, even now, today, these days, we have a lot of places in Tajikistan uh, without uh, electricity. And uh, during the winter time, there will be uh, limitation. And also uh, a lot of uh, other um, indicators of socio-economic situation are not uh, as was uh, declared uh, many many years ago. So, um, but uh, yeah, but the main the main uh, cause or reason uh, it's uh, having uh, there was a there was a, a, a command that to. Uh, make society silent when the power transfer will take place. And those journalists and bloggers and, of course, those uh, Badakhshani uh, civil activists uh, were uh, among uh, uh, those that will not keep uh, silence when uh, this plan will be implemented. Now, this is one point, and also... Uh, especially about the journalists. So as we, it, it's not started today. Uh, as we remember, uh, two or three years ago, a lot of media outlets were uh, closed uh, down in, in Tajikistan. Some of them, uh, as they say, uh, voluntarily due to economic reasons, but others, of course, uh, but all of them, as we know that, under huge pressure, and even if you remember, uh, on the eve of the of Badakhshan events, even the uh, one of the leading uh, independent media uh, holdings, Asia Plus, uh, uh, declared that they will not uh, publish a single sentence about uh, uh, Gorna Badakhshan because they received a threat from the uh, prosecutor general office uh, that if they will publish anything so they will be uh, shut down so uh, so this this uh, and but uh, edward also pointed this started maybe in in 2015 when when the oppositional uh, islamic uh, renaissance party was uh, uh, blamed as a terrorist and extremist organization and uh, it was uh, uh, banned in the country and a lot of uh, members and activists and uh, were, were detained and they are serving uh, some of them lifetime uh, prison. Uh, some of them escaped, uh, fled the country and based in, in Europe and other, play, uh, uh, other uh, countries, places. So 
so the, the, the whole picture is, is um, or the whole fact, the, 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 a lot of facts uh, telling us that, yes, there was a special plan to prepare the Tajik society for the uh, power transfer. Okay, thank you very much. Um, you know, Nick, I want to get to you with the, with the media, and, and also we can open up a little bit of discussion on the borders here too, because I want to get that in. Uh, you know, the Kazakhstan, or I mean, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan fought a brief war in 2021, and then they just fought another one last month. You know, now the, we understand that Tajikistan is an authoritarian government. They want the media to work for them. But we've seen, for example, in Uzbekistan, where they've been able to come to something of a compromise where the media can report on low-level corruption, and it gives people the idea that some officials are getting punished for their misdeeds, uh, but they don't go after the top guys. Uh, and in the case of the Kyrgyz-Tajikistan conflicts, Kyrgyzstan, which, as you know, has a much freer media, has done a, a much better job at, at reporting on what's been happening there and gotten a lot more sympathy internationally for the fact that, they, you know, they're able to report right away how many people are being evacuated and what the casualties are and what the situation looks like, whereas Tajik media, you know, still has an arm or both arms tied behind its back and doesn't seem at liberty to report on this. You know, I mean... I'm just interested in your your thoughts on the Tajik government's manipulation of the media. They should be able to let some media, you would think, act a little more freely just to get a more positive message out of the country. But they don't seem to do that. Why why such an insistence on Soviet era style media in Tajik? Yeah, this is a good point, and it's it's a point that's brought up many times uh, inside Tajikistan as well by by journalists there and civil society figures. Uh, not just this time, but also when there were border uh, problems of a slightly less severe nature last year. Uh, the same point was made, and it's made time and time again um, by journalists that this this is really the, the Tajik authorities shooting themselves in the foot because uh, Kyrgyzstan, with its much freer media sphere, is able to. Uh, to, to convey its message and, and to you know portray the suffering of its people around in, in, in border areas uh, in a way that, that Tajikistan just doesn't do and it in fact present it prevents its journalists uh, from doing so this is really one area that uh, that Tajik journalists uh, are really trying to uh, to push this argument as much as possible to say that you know it's it's not just uh, a press freedom issue it's also uh, you know, it's something that's affecting the the security and the standing of the country. I think that's that, that's a very uh, a very legitimate point to make. Great, thank you. And I, I want to mention two things too. There was another. It was a rocket attack that came from Afghanistan earlier uh, in May, actually, uh, that the Islamic State of Khorasan claimed credit for the that the Tajik government did not report on, at least initially. Uh, and then I, I believe, and Selim John can correct me if I'm wrong. I believe they said it was some stray rounds that happened to land from in Tajik territory from Afghan territory. So it's been unquiet there. But and, and I'll, I'll ask you this question, Salim John. Is 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 Tajikistan really more stable after all these effort after all these things that the Tajik government's done in domestically? Uh, you know, we know that there's extended families in Tajikistan. So every person arrested probably has 20 or 30 relatives who are angry about this right now. Do you, do you get the impression that all these efforts by the government are actually improving domestic stability or is the opposite true? Is it are more and more people getting angry and we're getting close to maybe uh, some unrest in the country? Yes, on the one hand, a lot of people became angry. A lot of people are unhappy about the government. But on the other hand, so but but the biggest part of those uh, potential uh, protest potential is 
is radicalizing as it was predicted by many experts uh, some some years ago and uh, we are witnessing a lot of sympathy to Taliban to, to others to, to, to Daesh and so on on the other hand uh, the border conflict with Kyrgyzstan helped Mr. Rahman somehow to consolidate his power, to consolidate the, the society. And as we are witnessing, so many people were thinking that after this conflict, the society will ask a lot of tough questions to the authorities, but it, it, it's not happening. You know, and as uh, one of my friends is saying, uh, before that and before his speech, his outburst, uh, uh, ranting uh, Putin in Astana's meeting, uh, now his popularity. Of un unfortunately, there is no no uh, weekly or or daily uh, sociological research about the popularity of, of uh, Tajik president or ministers and so on. I remember once we started that, but we faced a lot of problems because the uh, experts were not eager to take part in this kind of uh, poll. So, and one of my friends is saying that before that, he was just a president of Tajikistan. Now he became a super president of Tajikistan. So, uh, on, uh, because the system that Mr. Rahman has been building during all those three decades is, is uh, giving power only to him, to himself. So uh, just today we discussed with, the, with my colleagues about the, the uh, system, uh, power system in, in Tajikistan and uh, we came to the conclusion that now he can even appoint a head of the smallest city of the country, not, not saying about the judges of all the levels of the jurisdiction level. So he is doing everything himself. At the same time, he is not responsible. He is responsible for nothing. He is is not responsible for the situation in the country, for the border conflict, for what happened in, in Badakhshan. So no one is responsible. So in this kind of situation, uh, the, the st stable country, it's a kind of mirage. We, we don't know what will happen next. We don't know in, at, at what point uh, there will be something that will change everything. So, and the, those cases of journalists and bloggers cracked on in, in Badakhshan and persecution of Badakhshani people, mostly they are bringing negative uh, emotions and negative thoughts even among uh, of some uh, people who are, who are serving this government. That's why we, it's difficult to predict. Okay, great. Thank you. And actually, that's, that gives me a great transition into my next point, which is, Edward, I have a question for you. All right, considering the fact that what well, we've heard that, that um, you know, the, the crackdown is keeping things quiet, but in fact, it's certainly not certainly not adding anything to Rahman's popularity. And, you know, at the meantime, he does have external problems as well that, you know, we mentioned Afghanistan, and we know that there are militants that are who are actually from Jamayat Ansarullah, which is a, a the movement of mainly citizens of Tajikistan, 
um, who are just south of the border uh, of the Tajik border. And of course, we got this this ongoing problem with Kyrgyzstan, which looks like it's ready to erupt again anytime soon. And in fact, Kyrgyzstan just used drones against Tajikistan in the last conflict in September. You know, how precarious is, is it? I don't want you to make too big of a prediction, but how precarious is the Tajik government situation? I mean, they have a deteriorating situation domestically. Uh, they're they're grow more more unpopular. They might have got some popularity, as Salim John mentioned, from the, the conflict with Kyrgyzstan. But but even that, you know, if if another one breaks out, um, evidence would suggest there'll be more casualties and damage the next time around than there was even this last time. How precarious is the situation for the Tajik government at this moment, especially when they're planning on doing this transfer of power from father to son? Sure, I think it's a very challenging time. And I think that's one of the reasons, as Salim John mentioned, that we've seen this transition succession being delayed. You know, we, we talked about it maybe happening in 2020 with, with the elections um, scheduled for that year. Um, and that didn't happen perhaps because of COVID. And then obviously, we've had all these other the crises that have broken out as we've been discussing. Um, and so I think, you know, certainly Afghanistan is a challenge. So we do have Jamaat Ansarullah, which controls some of that border. You know, it's founded by a, a warlord from Tajikistan who didn't accept the peace deal of 1997, Amrudin Tabarov subsequently died, but um, you know the, the leadership of that organization still has connections within the country and, and, and most of, you know, many of the members are originally hailing from Tajikistan or descended from people who are hailing from Tajikistan. So certainly that's a threat. Um, I would say that the border situation with Kyrgyzstan and, and, and Tajikistan's, you know, um, the militarization of that conflict, as you've discussed on the Machu East podcast, and the sort of deployment of heavy weapons, mortars, drones, um, artillery, et cetera, et cetera, and, and the shelling of areas in Kyrgyzstan, for example, like downtown Batken, you know, it really signifies a massive escalation. And I think those problems are not going away. And I think, um, you know, looking at, at reporting from people like Asel Dulat Geldeva, who was just in, in Batken, you know, indicates that people, um, you know, on, certainly on the Kyrgyz side of the border are preparing for, for, for more um, for more violence and, and conflict. And I think that's, you know, that's going to be a, a major, a major um, challenge for, for, for not only Tajikistan, but the region as a whole. I think succession itself is also going to be potentially destabilizing. You know, we have this succession plan to give power to Rustam, the president's son, but the president has nine children and various other members of his extended family, not all of whom are completely aligned with Rustam. Um, and beyond that, we have people like uh, Yatimov, the head of the security services, who's known to not have the best relationships with, with Rustam. So I think certainly there are different factions, you know, different um, groups within the presidential family that Tajik, you know, President Rahman has managed to keep a lid on those conflicts for the most part. But I feel like as he, um, as, as, as succession takes place, it's going to open the opportunities for many of these um, groups within the presidential family, within the ruling elite, to potentially um, get into conflict with one another. And that could also be destabilizing. Okay, thank you very much. You know, Nick, I, I want to get in some last comments from you about the the media situation, especially you've been listening to the conversation going forward. I mean, how much how much does it handicap people in the country and, and people outside the country that, you know, we've been talking about all these events that are going on? You know, am I wrong in saying the Tajik media just doesn't get the message out that would that would help it to get more outside aid? sympathy, something like that. I know you kind of covered that with the Kyrgyz conflict, but I mean more broadly. Yeah, I think it's certainly an issue, particularly with the conflict with Kyrgyzstan. But I mean, just across the board, it seems like 
the, the Tajik authorities are just stuck in this mindset where they want to uh, make sure that as little information as possible about the country gets out. Uh, I mean, we saw this with the Badek Shan events in May. They uh, kind of immediately enforced uh, basically an information blockade on, on Badek Shan. They cut the internet, uh, telecommunications as well uh, across lots of the region. Uh, for, for well over a month, uh, the internet was down. And of course, that happened you know, for about four months uh, after they had the problems there in November as well. Um, I mean, they did things like put, put roadblocks in place, prevented journalists from, from going to Badakshan to report on, on the issues. Uh, and then, uh, of course, the threats against uh, Asia Plus, which were mentioned by Salim John uh, earlier, uh, threatening to close them down because of their allegedly one, one-sided coverage uh, of uh, events in Balakshan. Another thing we can mention was the attack on four um, RFERL uh, and current time TV journalists uh, who were reporting from Dushanbe, uh, interviewing Mamad Shoeva about, about events uh, in Balakshan. And I mean, those journalists have said they believe this was done by, it was done in a very professional way that suggests it was done by Tajik authorities, you know, the, uh, by law enforcement, uh, themselves and uh, Azad have been under intense, sorry, Radio Free Europe, uh, Radio Liberties, uh, Tajik Service, uh, Radio Azadi have been under uh, intense pressure since then. Um, so because of all this, uh, I mean, this has caused a huge amount of, uh, of self-censorship in Tajikistan, particularly on uh, Badak Shan uh, issues. Uh, and really we, what we've seen is that I mean, Azadi has done a fantastic job. They've been really the the, the main source for information, uh, not just about Badakhshan, but other other critical topics uh, as well, uh, alongside some of these uh, XR-based outlets, uh, European-based like uh, Bondod or Payam or some independent journalists like uh, Anwar Sakharov, who's done a fantastic job uh, covering uh, these topics. So it's been... I mean, it's very concerning going forward, like how how media society and how outlets in Tajikistan are going to be able to to continue covering topics that matter, not just you know, not just in terms of for, for, for an international audience, but also you know, to fulfil the, de- the demands and the needs of, of Tajik uh, citizens themselves for information about what's uh, what's going on in their society. Okay, thank you very much, uh, and we're coming to the end of the program, um, but I want and. I mean, we've discussed a lot, but there's obviously a lot more we probably could discuss on this topic, uh, what's happening in Tajikistan. Is there anything I left out and someone wants to make a last comment? Uh, the floor is open. Going once, going twice. Okay, third time. Then I'll, I'll say that we're, we've covered all that we can for 45 minutes, which is a lot. Um, so I, I want to give a big thank you to Nick and Selim John and Edward for being on the program today and helping me to discuss the situation in Tajikistan. Uh, of course, a huge thank you to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjolis podcast producer in Washington, D.C. Uh, and a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjolis podcast or the Central Asian Focus newsletter by visiting Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty's website at rfrl.org. Thank you very much, and we'll be back next week. Bye-bye.